this is the Q Podcast show, a show about ideas, innovations, and thinkers. Welcome, everyone. My name is Sri Krishnamurti. I am the CEO and founder of Quant University, and I'll be the host of the show. In this episode, Dr. Agus Sujianto from Wells Fargo joined us to talk about model risk and model validation for machine learning models. We talked about interpretability of neural network models and covered a wide gamut of topics, focusing on what does it mean for a large enterprise to adopt machine learning models and how does it affect model risk as a whole. So let's hear from Agus. Welcome to the fourth week of the Quant University Summer School 2020. So this summer we are doing the whole summer school online and uh, we are pleased to invite Dr. Agus Sugento from Wells Fargo and he's going to be speaking about model risk and machine learning. Two really cool topics and two of my favorite topics. And uh, Agus is one of the experts in the field, and he has been able to take the whole aspect about machine learning and model risk management and has brought all the core issues to the forefront. And he is a practitioner, but he is also very much involved with research and also is an active contributor to the research community by writing papers. So I'm very pleased to invite Agus. Uh, thank you so much, Agus, for joining today's Quant University session. And uh, I'm going to make a couple of quick announcements for people who are new to the Quant University community. And uh, I'm going to introduce you to a couple of different things we are doing. And um, then I will hand it over to Agus. Um, so uh, Quant University is an analytics advisory, and we are based out of Boston. And we started out Quant University in 2013 to look at the intersection of quantitative finance, machine learning, and data science. We were seeing this whole confluence of new technologies come into play, and we wanted to make sure that we were in the forefront of all the core things which are happening, but also from an advocacy perspective, from an education perspective, we were there to provide guidance and also provide our insights and expertise in terms of helping companies implement these technologies. Uh, we had more than 1,000 students take our courses through various channels, and we have been uh, offering courses through the Q Academy, and we have a bunch of certificate courses, and this summer we are offering a specialization in model risk management and machine learning. So as part of the summer school, you know, we are offering these three classes, one primarily focused on uh, Python for data science, an introductory class. We call it the Explore series for people who are really new to machine learning and data science machine learning and AI, a financial professionals course, and this course is primarily geared towards people who are in the financial services domain and who are interested in understanding machine learning and artificial intelligence. And the third course is primarily geared towards model risk professionals, and it's called model risk management for primarily machine learning models. So we have people from more than 12 different countries take these classes, and we have regulators, we have uh, consulting companies, we have banks, we have asset management companies. So we have a whole uh, you know, uh, diverse group of professionals taking these classes and we are very fortunate to engage with them and offer these courses. In addition to that, you know, we have a weekly speaker series and um, 
this is the third week and uh, we are going to be spending the next hour talking to uh, August is going to be talking about model risk and machine learning and we have uh, many other programs coming up in the next week we have Dr. Julia Fanti from Carnegie Mellon University and she's going to be sharing her research on generating synthetic data using GANs or generative adversarial networks. So uh, without further ado, I would like to introduce uh, Agus Sugianto. Uh, so we, the agenda for today, we're gonna hear Agus's views and uh, his presentation for the next 35, 40 minutes or so. And then we're gonna have a virtual fireside chat and Q&A. Uh, it's too early to have a fireside chat, but I did get my hot uh, cocoa uh, with me so that uh, you know we can we can enjoy the conversation. And uh, for people who don't know Agus, Agus is the executive vice president and head of corporate model risk at Wells Fargo, and he's uh, responsible for enterprise model risk management. Uh, prior to that, uh, he was at Lloyd's, and we were just having a conversation about uh, you know, London. And uh, prior to that, he was also at uh, Bank of America. And Agus holds various U.S. patents, both in finance and engineering. I don't know how you do it, Agus. You know, it's such a uh, you know fantastic combination of engineering, finance, um, and uh, you know he's the co-author of design and modeling of uh, computer experiments, and he has expertise in credit risk modeling, machine learning, and computational statistics. And now I know, you know, you have uh, advanced degrees from Wayne State University and also from Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which is like 15 miles away if I drive east towards uh, uh, Boston. Um, so I wish I knew you when you were, you know, your study, so I could get <laughs> some advice from you at that point. Um, so uh, without further ado, I would like to hand over the baton to Agus. So let me just stop sharing and I'm gonna make you the host, Agus. All right. Uh, thank you. Let me uh, thank you, Sri. Thank you for the kind introduction. And I would like to welcome everybody here uh, spending a, uh, uh, the next hours with me here to uh, uh, discuss the uh, topic that uh, near and dear my heart. So we'll talk about uh, machine learning and model risk uh, today and I will uh, focus a lot more on the uh, explainability and robustness and particularly uh, the uh, neural network we go to uh, uh, more in depth in that because that's how to make uh, I uh, my view that uh, uh, neural network is the most interpretable model in the machine learning world and we'll, we'll talk about that uh, how we do it and uh, so we i'm going to go through my presentation probably hopefully in about uh for about 35 uh, minutes so that uh we can leave we can have about 15 20 minutes at the end for q a okay so let me start with uh where where i came from i i work for wells fargo i'm the chief model race for wells fargo and uh uh sharing with you that bank bank runs by model so we, we use model for both financial model, that's a traditional area, credit, market, liquidity, revenue, loss, stress test, capital management, investment. So those are the, uh, the whole gamut of financial model that traditionally bank always use and bank use them a lot. But bank also use a lot of non-financial model. This is where uh, the, uh, a lot more machine learning applied in, in, in this area, dealing with the uh, customer service, financial crime detection, marketing, compliance, uh, staffing, you name it, from 
So we have the whole gamut from something very mundane to something very, very sophisticated. And I give an example. For example, when you make a phone call to a bank, uh, to uh, the call center, and you call because you lost your credit card or you left your credit card somewhere and you need to get a replacement. And, and, and those, uh, your call will be monitored by uh, bank's machine learning model and uh, will get uh, evaluated in terms of where the call's coming from, uh, the, uh, what line do you use, what phone do you use, the, uh, the, uh, the voice biometric, the background noise, etc. And decisions are made by, uh, by machine learning to advise the uh, uh, person that answer, answer your call to, to what to do. In particular, if the call can be fraudulent, the, 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 the model will, will, will say it as well. So from something like that to all the way in the current situation uh, uh, during the COVID-19, we have to perform stress tests. How, the, how is bank going to, going to survive uh, and have enough capital under more severe scenario that we have. So that's, that's what uh, uh, the, the, the whole gamut and uh, so uh, of that. And every model in, in, in banks has to, be, has to be governed appropriately, have to be tested appropriately. So uh, the use of model uh, for, for a financial institution create both financial and non-financial risk. And they are heavily regulated through the life cycle of model by uh, regulatory guidance uh, called SR117 in the US, that's by the Fed or the sister of that called OCC11.12. It's a really governing end-to-end life cycle for all model, uh, require independent model validation, require uh, monitoring and mitigation. So some of you that interested in uh, that uh, not familiar with SR eleven seven, you can follow the uh, the link there that 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 I have. Now, in in terms of machine learning, uh, we uh, banks apply machine learning for 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 various area, the area that traditionally the domain of statistical model, like credit risk and financial crime. So, in there. Typically, people apply both supervised and unsupervised machine learning. In financial crime, you do outlier detection. That's unsupervised machine learning. Uh, banks also use it as, uh, uh, as an alternative to statistical techniques or as a model benchmark. You compare. The model production probably uh, is a standard statistical model, but it's benchmarked the performance with the uh, machine learning model. Or machine learning model are used to, to diagnose, to, to do feature engineering, to do variable selection. So in a whole thing, some model really machine learning get implemented or uh, used as a benchmark or used as a tool to do feature engineering for, for more traditional models. So the whole, uh, the whole way, uh, various in various way, model used to, uh, as an alternative to a statistical model. Uh, we talk about the uh, non-financial risks. Uh, banks also use for area that previously no model, like in compliance, uh, conduct, uh, customer assistance. So monitoring uh, traders' behavior, uh, uh, looking at their chat and their, their email conversation. Those are done through, 
through uh, through machine learning, through uh, a lot of NLP application in that. Uh, having a uh, assisting customer when customer complain, where's the complaint need to get routed to? That's a machine learning model through that uh, uh, routing the uh, the complaint, and many other area that you're familiar with like chatbot and and all of those things. Other area that that banks, commercial bank like Wells Fargo use, we use it for uh, alternative techniques to do intensive numerical com computation. This is uh, the, the domain of uh, derivative pricing and market risk where we apply deep learning for uh, stochastic PDE solver, or we use uh, GAN uh, to model stochastic process and time series for simulation. So we can, uh, there are several paper uh, that I gave here on the, uh, uh, in the link that, that, that uh, how, we, how we use it as an alternative for derivative pricing. So if some of you that interested in can follow the links and look at the paper and archive, those are some of uh, works that, that my teams uh, are doing and publish uh, uh, in, in archive. Let me start with this before I talk deeper in terms of, 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 of the model and how to do things. Let's start with model risk. So this is from the famous George Box. All models are wrong, some are useful. That's what George Box said. I would say uh, somewhat differently. I would say all models are wrong, and when they are wrong, they create harm or damage to financial institution or to customer. So, so that's what uh, really uh, uh, where we start with when we're talking about model risk. All models are wrong, and when they are wrong, they produce damage to the, to the company or to the customer. And that can be both financial harm or non-financial harm. Financial harm, you you lost uh, you lost money. Uh, uh, in in the non-financial harm is reputation compliance or legal. So I give an example. If the model is uh, is for hedging, then model create market risk because it's uh, it's mishedging. For financial crime or conduct surveillance, uh, when model is wrong, it miss detection. So this create compliance risk. So if for money laundering, then you miss detection. Uh, staffing model, when model wrong, it can be understaffed. Uh, customer has to wait for a long time that create reputational risk. Credit approval, when you uh, sometimes model risk is nothing to do with the uh, purpose or the, the, uh, the performance of model. For example, on credit approval, yes, we want to choose customers so to be able to to force rank customer in terms of credit worthiness, but it can create model risk too in terms of fair lending if the model make a, a, a discriminatory decision for protected class. So that's create fair lending and compliance risk. Online marketing, this is something that sounds very, very innocent. So when you go online, you get, uh, you get product offering. You in, in uh, social media like Facebook or Instagram, you got all those advertisements, right? Similarly, when you go to bank, you go to your online system, you will get product offering. So the, 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 the goal of the model is to create product offer that will be reviewed or will be received by customer, right? Looking at the propensity. But that's the, that's the, uh, the model performance. But in terms of model risk, it can be completely unrelated to that or somewhat unrelated. For example, 
when you do product offering, they will be based on the cookies, based on the uh, website that was reviewed before, was visited, and all of those things. And web usage, cookie usage, we're dealing with privacy. And it's very can be very, very demographic as well, the way people use uh, uh, behavior, behavior in the online. So it can create a fairness issue in terms of product offering that create legal risk. So this is just a, a few illustration that the uh, model, all models are wrong. And then when they're wrong, they will, they will, they will create damage to both the uh, uh, institution or the customer. Let's, uh, let's look at uh, focus a little bit more on the, uh, on the model risk. And when we talk about model validation, this is my view when we look at model validation for the purpose of model risk. A lot of people thinking about model validation is looking at the uh, model performance, how performance can be improved, etc. It's important aspect to look at model performance, but uh, from model risk point of view, we cannot just look at uh, model performance. We need to really question how model will fail. How, what's the model risk? Then when model wrong, you create damage, right? So it's very, very important to have the acceptance matrix. What is, uh, how, how, how wrong can a model will be? What is the acceptance criteria? I give an example, very simple example that, that we, 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 you, you, many of you are familiar, let's say false negative. If misdetection, if for financial crime, misdetection is very important, then we look at what kind of misdetection are sufficient and how much misdetection is, uh, is, uh, is acceptable and why is it acceptable. So acceptance criteria metrics in terms of model risk, very, very important. Then from the definition of model risk, what the model can go wrong, how are we going to measure it? We start asking question to do root cause analysis. What are the root cause that, uh, of the failure or harm? It can be from data, it can be from other input, it can be from modeling framework, it can be from variable selection, it can be from training parameter estimation, hyperparameter tuning, it can be from implementation or misuse. So understanding the root cause, very, very important so that we can say, okay, that's a potential root cause. Let me create a test, test to failure. This is a very, very fundamental concept in model validation. Not only testing for performance, but test model to fail. When, when I was an engineer, I used to be an engineer at Ford Motor Company. I used to be engineer, one of the engineering manager that designing, uh, leading the design of a physics and field engine at Ford Motor Company. So we always test product for failure. Uh, if you have your iPhone, uh, your iPhone must be tested in many, many ways to look at how can it fail, including something that let's say, let's do a simple thing like a drop test. How much height I can, how much height I can drop my, my, my iPhone so that it won't be broken, right? No product failure. So when dealing with model, it's very, very important to test for robustness advers or, or adversarial test to identify model failure how the model will fail, how much the model will fail. And then from that, quantify the impact. 
for each root cause because it can fail because of data, it can because of training data, it can fail because of the features. So how much is the impact of that uh, root cause to the, uh, the acceptance matrix? And then from that understanding model weakness, understanding model failure, we put a mitigation, a monitoring, and how to, uh, how to manage the potential harm that model are created. Uh, for machine learning in specific, for, for machine learning uh, a bit more specific here, there are common causes that model is. One is uh, many of you are aware and a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, exposure in the press as well about data defect and bias. Input, uh, both in the input and target trending data because uh, bias can be coming from input, bias start, uh, can be coming from when you label the data. Beware of implicit bias. This is very, very important because it can touch the, uh, the ethics issue if the bias, this is sometimes a difficult decision that you have to make. Do you want to build this model for this particular application? If we're dealing with societal bias, bias that's implicit in the culture and the society, you have to be willing to say, no, we're not going to do this. So uh, in other area, uh, you can you can you can probably uh, give uh, uh, do some treatment on the on the data to to reduce the bias. But sometimes uh, in many situations when we are working on this, uh, we we probably uh, facing with the uh, the ethical issue and the societal bias that we just say no, we're not going to build model or apply model for uh, for certain application. Conceptual soundness are very, very important in the machine learning world, particularly because we're dealing with a lot of variable. Uh, we will be dealing with spurious variable effect, confounding factor. We're going to talk a little bit deeper on the conceptual soundness and how uh, we deal with conceptual soundness. And this is where the, uh, the, uh, the area of machine learning explainability is very, very important. So we're going to dwell in more detail in terms of uh, uh, machine learning explainability and how to build machine learning model that is interpretable from the ground up. So we'll spend a lot of time today on that subject. Model robustness, I, I, I talk about that, uh, touch a little bit on this. Uh, the, the machine learning community is the obsession with model performance. For example, like the uh, uh, in Kegel, you can have a third-digit uh, improvement and you, your, your rank, uh, rating will be up. The, the obsession with automatic machine learning, AutoML, to get to choose model that has the best performance, uh, hyperparameter tuning or data mining on the, on the feature, to, to, to get the best performance. Uh, it's, it's, I'm not saying that performance is not important. Yes, performance is important, but we have to understand real world is dynamic, data drift. So if you choose model with have the best performance, it may not be in the real world perform the best because the world changed. So, so we'll talk about uh, model robustness in a, in a, bit, a bit detail later. Model change control, I'm going to touch a little bit of this. Uh, it's, it's, it's important because machine learning model is uh, highly non-parametrics. It can fit anything. So if the, if the data change, you retrain it, basically you change your model. So 
change control is extremely critical. When you do that, you have to go back to look at, do I have bias, introducing bias? Do I have conceptual soundness? I need to check for model robustness again, because retraining a, uh, 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 a produce a new model. Model use control, because we know model will fail. When they fail, it need to, uh, it need to fail uh, is it acceptable? Some area is zero tolerance in terms of failure. Others, if, when dealing with compliance in financial institution, others are really more, more soft failure that we can fail graciously or in uh, an acceptable way. All right, let's talk about conceptual soundness uh, a, a little bit. Uh, uh, this is uh, critical to, to have a trusted model. Uh, we need to understand when we have machine learning model, does the model make sense? Can we trust the model? How's the, uh, in the context of model risk, how's the model going to fail? We need to understand it. Uh, with this, model explainability is very, very important uh, to understand whether model makes sense or not. Is the, uh, is the features that are being used uh, as an input and critical feature makes sense and their effects are make sense. So when we're dealing with machine learning, outcome testing alone is not enough because we typically split uh, data from testing, uh, training and testing. Often in the testing data, we split it further for validation to, to choose hyperparameter. So testing input and output pick the best model alone is not enough because we need to be able to understand, to explain what, if the model really makes sense, processing input and it's the right input, the feature makes sense and the relationship between input and output makes sense, uh, the attribution, because my, especially in a, when, when it comes to model that make uh, impacting our customer, for example, approving credit or not approving credit, increasing the uh, or decreasing the line of credit or any other uh, impact to customer, we need to have a attribution to understand what are the adverse impact uh, to, uh, to, to customer. Uh, and of course, also to, to understand uh, failure operating region, area where model will, will be the weakest, it has uncertainty so that the model can make a cautious generalization. How do we do this? Uh, I am going to focus on one area. So a lot of techniques in the input-output explainability. This is also known as post hoc analysis to understand input and output. A lot of techniques in there. I'm going to touch very briefly. Uh, I'm not going to spend too much time on that. That's becoming more standard today. Model distillation, basically second approach is through model distillation, uh, simplified, uh, 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 creating a simplified and interpretable model to explain the uh, more complicated machine learning model. And the third approach is structured interpretable model. Let's build a machine learning model that explainable, interpretable from the ground up by constraining the model structure or model architecture. And this we can do a lot with neural network on, on, on this. So I'm going to spend more time on the, uh, on the third subject. Before we do that, uh, I'm just touching very quickly on the uh, post hoc attribution, the first input output explainability, a lot of techniques out there, global variable important, sharp, 
PDP and all the whole gamut of of explainability techniques that I'm assuming uh, Sri is uh, 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 covering that in his uh, in his course and a lot of textbook, a lot of now start getting more popular incorporated in uh, many uh, uh, software uh, have the explainability tool. So I'm not going to dwell too much on that one. Model distillation, uh, basically, is, uh, one, many different techniques as well. So one of the most popular techniques is uh, basically using tree. And in this example, uh, we, 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 use a, uh, we use a tree and at the node, instead of just a constant, it has a, a regression equation. So I'm doing a regression with, with, with tree at the terminal nodes. And because this is at, at the terminal node, a linear regression, they are becoming a uh, very, very interpretable because you can see all the coefficient like uh, uh, in that. So some of you that are interested in can go to a paper that we published in, uh, in archive. I'm going to talk about more how to build interpretable model from the ground up. I would like to argue that neural network, we can make neural network as the most interpretable machine learning model. That's what we're going to do here. So uh, linear model, everybody know linear model, very, very standard regression model. And then how linear model, how regression dealing with nonlinearity, introducing spline. Basically the simplest thing is instead of, instead of just X, I'm creating a basis function called B here. And the simplest basis function is basically piecewise linear. Uh, linear uh, 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 above certain threshold are linear or certain region are linear and then that will be zero. So we have a summation of piecewise linear model. Now, of course, people can use higher order polynomial, but let's uh, do for, for, for time being very, very simple piecewise linear model. Then you can have piecewise linear model, then becoming you have nonlinear model. And that's what spline is in statistics basically right the traditional statistics non-parametric statistics introducing spline and special case of spline uh, for that when we're dealing with higher dimension we call what in statistician called single index model basically you 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 project it first into univariate variable you project it you multiply it by a vector uh, to make it univariate then you apply spline on that univariate, so you have what we call it single index model. It's called single index model because the variable from high dimension, uh, it's uh, reduced into single dimension D index, and then you apply spline. So this in neural network is a very, very straight. If I do spline, I can do with this univariate, I do a piecewise linear, neural network people call it ReLU. Right, this is the ReLU basis function. It's the same thing. So neural network and spline in a univariate is the same thing. So in single hidden layer network, it's basically single index model. I'm going to generalize it now. Instead of single one, single projection, I am going to get many, many, many projection. If I do many projection, no longer single, single index, but becoming multi-index, right? So that's single hidden layer network. Uh, single index model is very, very interpretable because I can see the regression, what is the impact, and then uh, univariate, and I can, I can plot it, what the effect of, of that, right? So single hidden layer network, 
It's also can be seen as uh, especially if it's piecewise linear. We'll talk about that a little bit later. If it's piecewise linear, basically it's a, a summation of piecewise linear model. So uh, it's a linear model. If a single hidden layer network with ReLU basis function locally is a linear model, globally is nonlinear. Locally, we can see exactly what variable are important, so we can see the, the interpretability are very, very clear. How do we deal with if we want to be more sophisticated, right? This is what we call it additive index model. So instead of fully connected network, now I'm limiting my input only very, very few projection. And after I project it, Instead of applying spline, I can apply deep network as the nonlinearity and then combine them at the end. This is additive index model, uh, uh, neural network uh, implementation of additive index model. If we're dealing with small number of projection, we can see all the uh, regression coefficients. So we can see each subnetwork is doing something. I have a linear equation. The beta can be very, have clear interpretation. And then univariate, I can see what the nonlinearity is and then how it's combined. So uh, additive index model, we can use that as, as an explainable neural network. You can implement in a neural network uh, by limiting the number of input a projection to make it a lot more interpretable model. So some of you that are interested in can follow the uh, uh, more detail in the uh, in the archive paper as well. This is an example of that. So let's say uh, I have uh, uh, this network is using four module. If you go to the previous slide, I have one, two, three, four module, and each module you can see the pro uh, the projection. This variable that's in there, another variable, so you can see very very clearly, and you can see the nonlinearity from each module as well. So you can have model that's very, very interpretable. That's the, uh, the whole idea behind explainable neural network. We can make it ad, uh, adaptive. So some of you that are interested in, you can look at the, uh, the paper in archive as well. What this one is, okay, let me do, make it even more interpretable. <clears throat> Working on <clears throat> explainable neural network that make it even more interpretable. So the techniques is, I'm doing going to do two states. Stage one, I'm going to be main effect only. So I'm creating like generalized additive in the generalized additive model, GAM, right? <clears throat> because it's univariate, I have GAM. A single factor, so you can see what's nonlinearity. After you exhausted main effect only, then you apply X and N in previous space to capture the interaction so you can see what interaction coming uh, uh, after that. So it's becoming very, very interpretable because you have the main effect for, in, uh, for important variable, and then you can see the interaction effect. So again, some of you that are interested in more detail, you can follow uh, in, uh, in the, uh, uh, in the uh, uh, archive paper on that. How about fully connected network? When we're dealing with fully connected network, deep network, deep network with ReLU activation function can be decomposed into local linear model, deep learning and with ReLU. 
at the end of the day is additive index is additive uh, additive uh, piecewise linear model. So ReLU deep network with ReLU locally is a linear model, and you can you can extract local model for each of the point and the prediction. So you can get local exact interpretation. Let me go back a little bit. Because every uh, deep network is local linear, you can flatten deep network. After the deep network get trained, you can flatten it into single layer. Uh, we're going to publish this paper probably in, uh, probably in three weeks. Uh, you will see it in archive, how to flatten deep network into single network. So deep learning, you can flatten it into a single layer network. So the equation becoming like this, right? just becoming very, very wide. So after you train deep learning, you can flatten it into single layer, flat, large network, then you can prune it. So, so the, uh, when, you, when you have a single layer, you know it's a piecewise linear, and you know exactly the coefficient, and you know how it's being combined. So that's, that's the key in the uh, deep, ReLU network, local interpretation is exact. You don't need SHAP, you don't need uh, any post hoc, you don't need any of those variable importance, all those tricks, you don't need LIME to understand it. You have exact equation for, for a deep ReLU network. Uh, global, so you can see it in this example, basically. So locally, you can see what is the effect of each variable. And some of you that work in banking, if you need to have recent code, why credit is being declined, you can see it why it's being declined because those variable importance. So recent code can come out very exact in a deep ReLU network. How about if globally, how can we understand globally? Globally is very, very simple too. Calculate locally, every sample point calculate locally. That local coefficient is basically in the in the in the language of calculus is dy dxi is partial derivative. Then you can plot and you can average them. You can plot in this example the x variable and on the y here is dy dxi the partial derivative. So in this column here is dy dx once again x one. What when I change x one? how the gradient toward, uh, with respect to X1 change. If it's constant, meaning the model is linear, right? The gradient is constant, it's linear, here is the effect. When it's changing here, X2, then you can see it's nonlinear non -linear because it's, it's constantly changing. And changing uh, constant and monotonic, so it's a monotonic, it's a, you can see this one as, 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 as that. And this is second derivative, uh, this is the derivative, it can be non-monotonic, you can see it. So the, uh, the, the diagonal here is the main effect. And then the off-diagonal in this one example, dy dx3 against x5, partial derivative on variable compared to the other. This is the interaction. Interaction within variable three and variable five, you can see when they are not constant, 
when they are not constant, they have strong interaction. So globally, you can interpret it in a very, very exact way as well, because you have local linear model. So that's in terms of explainability, and we can make deep learning as the most interpretable model. Uh, it's not, I, I cannot say the same thing for other ensemble model. Other ensemble model like boosting and random forest naturally is, 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 is much less interpretable, so you have to use the different technique, the explainability techniques. I like to use uh, deep learning because you can, from the ground up, you can make an, a very interpretable model. So if people out there talk about deep learning is not interpretable, it's the most black box, that's actually is, is the opposite. Deep learning neural network supposed to be the most interpretable model. Here's another uh, a topic that I want to cover before we open it up for, for, for Q&A. This is a very important one, model robustness test. This is uh, core and center in managing model risk. Uh, building real world model, as I said, is not Kegel competition. Uh, the, uh, it's not talking about uh, third digit improvement or even second digit improvement kind of things that we're talking about. Uh, current AutoML miss important aspect of uh, reliability of model. Too much focus on model performance and do not address model robustness. That uh, I talk about dynamic environment. When we build model, I split the data into training and testing. When we do training and testing, you assume your data is static. Your data doesn't change. In real world, data change. So this is how you, we want to make sure that we design model that's robust against environmental changes. I, uh, I remember in my engineering day when I designed engine, engine will operate in a different altitude, different temperature, different humidity, and they ha the performance has to be very consistent. So the same thing for model. Model will be exposed to uh, different kind of population drift and model need to be more robust. So in, 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 in for natural language processing, for example, you need a robust model because model that's not robust, it will be very susceptible to adversarial attack. People change the mod, the, uh, the word a little bit or change the uh, with synonym or even change the character, the, the model can misclassify. So it's very, very dangerous to just looking at performance based on static testing and training data. We need to test for model robustness. We need to test for adversarial attack. So this is an example of, I just give a, a, a small illustration here. I, I have model, if I, if I just split it based on training and testing, this two model has the same performance in terms of accuracy, yeah? But then when I perturb the input, one model, more robust, the performance, this is the size of perturbation here, the size of perturbation, the models, they're performing very well, one, the one in blue, the one in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in yellow here, perform degrading very, very rapidly. So clearly this is not model, uh, model not robust here. So this is something that we need to pay attention. You choose model that's blue, not just model that is 
in, uh, in, uh, in amber here. This is another example. If we choose solely based on testing and training data, I will choose the blue model here because my MSE, uh, in, uh, I'm sorry, the, the amber here, because my, my MSE is smaller. So I, uh, you run auto ML, you run, uh, you choose the one model that the best, you choose this model. But when you perturb the input, the model degrade very, very rapidly. While this model, even though the performance in terms of MSE is bigger, but it's very robust when you perturb, it performance doesn't degrade as much. So very, very important here because model will be, uh, NLP model will go through adversarial attack, right? Other model will, uh, will, will experience population drift. How to deal with this? Let me close my talk so that we can have 15 minutes for, for fire chat or Q&A here. Uh, governing machine learning uh, model is here. Uh, I'm sharing a little bit about what we do in Wells Fargo. Uh, we have policy and procedure governing model life cycle. Uh, we, we, uh, this is the, uh, uh, from inception of model to retirement of model. We, we have our enterprise innovation team that focus on AI strategy and our coordination across the company. So we have a uh, 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 deployment and development that's more coordinated across the company. We have uh, what we call it model development center of excellence. We have centralized model development, including all vendor model has to go through uh, model development center of excellence to be tested uh, uh, to uh, uh, in terms of model risk, corresponding to what we discussed before, uh, we have uh, dedicated the development and deployment platform that we use. We have model validation standard. We have a dedicated team that uh, that, that that focus on uh, machine learning model validation, uh, standardized library and tests. I share with you a little bit in terms of explainability, in terms of the uh, a lot of uh, fairness testing robustness testing that the model library that use to test uh, machine learning that we have. And I spoke a little bit about the uh, uh, financial, uh, non-financial risk, reputational risk, uh, legal risk when, uh, when we apply machine learning. So legal and compliance partner are very, very critical for us to review and to provide, provide that approval. So with that three, I think I'm hitting we have uh, 14 minutes probably to do open Q and A, Sri. Oh, thank you so much, Agus. This was this was an absolute pleasure. I learned a lot myself too. Um, I was kind of recollecting my days as a design engineer. Uh, so you were manufacturing cars in uh, Ford, and I was manufacturing hydraulic excavators uh, for Komatsu back home. Um, yeah. Kind of uh, the fun days when we were, you know, dealing with these really large steel plates and doing fatigue testing to figure out when these plates would fail before yeah. we can like, you know, deploy them. And my first job was always the best one because I was sent to this field with 25 other hydraulic excavators and we were yeah. basically taking all the mud and throwing it apart. And like, you know, it was, it was, it was a blast. I mean, kind yeah. of wish I could yeah. go back to those days. Uh, so yeah. we have a couple yeah. of questions. Um, <clears throat> I think a couple of them are very specific. So I think we'll get them out of the way. I think the one specific one was in the prior chart, what was the x-axis, which was the R was one of the questions. Um, oh, very good. R is the size of perturbation. Okay. So you define, uh, and this is, uh, I, I put it in more general term here, R is the size of perturbation and 
de- how you define your perturbation because so many ways to do perturbation. As simple as the simplest things you do random perturbation, right? That's the simplest thing. How big is your random perturbation, basically? It can be more sophisticated. For example, my perturbation is defined by the covariance matrix, mm-hmm. uh, by, the, uh, by the eigenvector. You perturb the eigenvector instead of perturbing the, uh, uh, the one variable at a time. So there are many ways here to define what, what do we mean by perturbation. Because, for example, this is very important. Uh, when we apply machine learning, we apply to very heterogeneous data. That's why in machine learning, typically, we don't do segmentation. In traditional modeling, we do segment the data, and for each segment, we build separate model, right? That's what we do. In machine learning, typically, we don't do segmentation. We, we, we model the whole thing together. Now, if because we don't segment it, each segment, they are different. Their correlation, their, their, their covariance matrix will be different. So, and we know population drift. Today, uh, probably we, we originate 70% of customer A, 30% customer, D, uh, customer B. In the future, it may flip. So we have to perturb it with the, uh, with the, uh, with the covariance matrix or the, the structure of, the, uh, of, of each segment. So there are many ways when, how you define D. I'm just... Uh, and, but in the end, uh, R is really, uh, really uh, how, 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 how the deviation from, from the original training data. Cool. So I actually had a question about um, how do you manage drift in your models? You know, when, do you have any specific measurement metrics or is there a process involved in terms of understanding yeah. when these models Yeah, fail? yeah. The, the traditional approach is one variable at a time, right? That's called uh, population drift. Uh, PSI, right? That's the what the uh, the the more modern one is uh, multivariate way, right? Mm-hmm. To to detect that, and many different ways you can do it, including if you want to do auto encoding, right? Mm-hmm. If you have auto encoding, you use auto encoding, then you can look at the error, right? The error reconstruction. If you have drift, your error error reconstruction will be will be bigger. So you can do it multivariate. If you want to use machine learning, then you do auto encoding to do that. So that's really more uh, on the population drift detection. You want to do mul- uh, uh, univariate or you want to do uh, multivariate. Mm-hmm. But I'm talking in here is upfront during model development, during testing. Okay. Can we test it for robustness, right? Just like the way we do in engineering, right? We self-test it under different environments using the, uh, the, uh, the training and testing data that we have. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I think we, there's one more question with respect to the, um, to the deep neural networks and the interpretation aspects of it. I think the question is, uh, you know, in terms of uh, uh, taking the model and, you know, looking at the piecewise linear aspects of it, isn't mm-hmm. it the same as taking uh, any neural network, approximating it locally with the linear model, and then looking at the coefficients is the point. Right. You don't need to approximate it locally because mm-hmm. it's exact in neural network, you know? You don't need local linear approximation. You don't need Lyme. It's mm-hmm. exact. If you use ReLU, it's exact. Unless you use tangent hyperbolic or, or sigmoid activation function, you can do th- Then you need to do linear approximation. But today, I don't honestly... Yes, you can get something more smoothness with tangent hyperbolics, with, with ReLU, but why do you want to do that complication, you know? Why not just use ReLU 
when mm-hmm. when piecewise linear is good enough and locally you get exact interpretation you don't need lo- uh, local linear approximation right and uh, I, I it was one of the questions i always had is uh, i mean I, i look at your linkedin profile and you always have like you know hiring stem phd's yeah um so it seems like you have a very robust no pun intended uh, team to help you build all these machine learning models um but many times when we go in like you know we kind of see that a lot of companies have the skill gap you know they have a very mm-hmm. strong you know mm-hmm. or machine learning development mm-hmm. team but when it comes down to the model risk management team you know they're not they're not that sophisticated in terms of understanding all the mathematics and right. uh, models but they are tasked to like you know validate these models yeah. so how do you yeah. kind of you know balance out this uh, yeah. you know uh, disparity in terms of you know both skill sets which is real but also right. the expectations from different groups yeah yeah well uh, we always uh, hire uh, we do hiring and every year we hire about 50 fresh phd's right that's what mm-hmm. we do fresh out of school with zero experience we train people through a job rotation for one year in model development and model validation and permanent placement by the way we don't only hire phd's we hire phd and and master level the only thing we hire phd's is because of the uh, uh for 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 visa issue you know visa mm-hmm. sponsorship so uh, it's uh, it's easier to get visa approval uh for for phd but we hire we hire master as well in in the model in the model validation team uh about 90% are phd 10% are masters in model development uh it's the uh, the population of phd is much smaller it's about 40% phd 60% masters in model development so mm-hmm. uh, why we do that way because in model validation the job of people in model validation is to break model mm-hmm. so to break model you need to be more sophisticated than the model or the, the other side that you try to break you know so it's just like you have to be a smarter hacker than what you want to hack right mm-hmm. so that's that's at the end of the day uh what we do why we staff a little bit more tilted to phd in model validation but we hire very very broadly mm-hmm. and uh, another question which uh, is more of a process related question i think uh, there are a lot of moving pieces as you can understand oh by the way just to kind of you know you are alluded to all these metrics so i'm going to see if we can do a quick demo at the end but we have these coming up in the next module wherein we are basically you know building out a bunch of demos to illustrate how you can do assessment of fairness and assessment mm-hmm. of explainability and various ratios and concepts uh, so that's all a part of the course for people who are taking the course uh the process piece is you know again interesting and i've been tracking the evolution of all these tools especially coming out of the silicon valley you know you have tools mm. specifically for model management specifically mm. for interpretability specifically for you know uh prominence related issues and mm. uh you have privacy related tools so mm. um how much of your ecosystem is built upon yeah. you know you you know cobbling up all the open source tools yeah. and building out a workflow versus you are opting like oh these people already have these systems in place let's just start off them and incorporate them into your work right right uh we have mixed uh, a lot of things that we do uh a lot of open source and internal development mm-hmm. so model validation because they have to be independent in ha- in heavily regulated industry so we tend to have 
uh, model validation tend to have model validation uh, system and testing mm -hmm. library that they build internally. Model developer is tasked with fast turnaround, right? Quick turnaround, build model. So they will look at productivity tool, whatever available out there, combined with internally developed. And then, of course, the model deployment as well, because explainability and monitoring is not only for model development, but also for model monitoring because model change. So more people that is in production model monitoring is, is less technical people. They don't, they don't have PhD and they need to maintain production. So they need automated tool, nice, readily available tool that's, that do that. Mm -hmm. So model developer, they have mixed combination, you know, to, uh, from a uh, tool that's available out there as well as internally developed. So it vary model to validator tend to be uh, custom built. They want to get the, do the best, the latest, because that's their job to really break finding what's wrong in the current one. And the, the production people and the model developer tend to use a tool that's available out there combined with in internal enhancement. Interesting, very interesting. Um, I think there's a follow-on question. Um, it's about benchmarking of models. So do you benchmark one machine learning model with another machine learning model? Um, how do you kind of, you know, look at it and of any course. guidelines from SR 11.7 you follow or yeah. uh, just a process-related question? Yeah, I think the important on benchmarking is this. Uh, we do benchmarking not only model performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is very key. Model developer, they need to benchmark for model performance. They pick the model that best performs. In model validation, model risk, focus on benchmarking to look at model risk. How wrong model can be? Which one, when it's wrong, has less damage, right? So I give you example in my slide, in slide 16, we do benchmarking, compare model A and model B. Which one is more robust? If I perturb the input, how is the classification going to get flipped? Which one has more error? Mm -hmm. so, so for model validation purpose, for model risk purpose, you need to have model validation, uh, model benchmark, particularly to see how much, uh, how much model risk that one and the other create in the uh, non-ideal situation, basically. So. Uh, that's what I, I try to advocate here because uh, it's, it's, it's very important. Modern benchmarking also important to say, I am going to build machine learning and all those things. At the end of the day, if you talk about neural networks, for example, at the end of the day, the final layer of neural network is GLM, yep. right? It's GLM. Before it, it's all feature engineering, right? right? Transforming into embedding space that right. linear model will work. Right, I give an example, singularity network, the last layer, it's just linear model. Deep network, we can flatten it into singular network. So, so it's very, very important, even if you want to implement it as a GLM, you can look at it as the, uh, the features, what feature that is the best. Mm -hmm. So benchmarking important either for performance, robustness, or for feature, for feature creation. Absolutely. And do you use traditional stress testing, back testing, and uh, I do have a process around like, well, you know, when you submit the model to the model risk management team, you yeah. should have done these, you know, this of course. level of testing. Of course, those so are the standard stuff, right? Best testing you have to do. And uh, part of robustness 
is basically how robust the model is. If the model is stress testing is part of that, I'm going to subject the model into different scenario, right? Mm-hmm. How do you perturb, you do sensitivity analysis is, is, is part, of, part of that as well. So yes, you do a lot of stress testing is a must. Uh, and uh, if models, uh, then the question is, how do you do stress testing? Is stress testing you based on the external environment in some model is macroeconomics or or it's really uh, more the internal in uh, the inter- uh, endogenous effect, the uh, loan level type of characteristic or something? Interesting, interesting. So just to kind of give a plug about that, you know, we are kind of evaluating potentially using synthetic data. Mm-hmm. As a way of augmenting your traditional use cases for stress testing. And yeah. the next talk, uh, Dr. Julia Fanti is going to be sharing some of her work on building upon GANs. And mm-hmm. she's going to be speaking about synthetic data generation from a time series perspective. So right. we're kind of looking at the whole area of, you know, if you do yeah, not have yeah. data and enough test cases, how do you think about right. it? Do you have any By the way, if some of you interested in GAN, some of example of our GAN paper, you can also go to archive.org and search under my last name. It has scan paper there that talk about how you scan for macroeconomic, large-scale macroeconomic modeling, as well for value-at-risk simulation. Absolutely. And is do you, you know, I was kind of looking at one of the papers. Do you uh, just use a univariate approach or is that a multivariate approach? Multivariate approach. Okay. Multivariate approach. If you look at the uh, paper in the, uh, in the archive, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's uh, for macroeconomics, especially factor autoregressive model, Right. Uh, for VAR, we do it for high dimensional VAR, you know, okay. so mm-hmm. uh, 500 dimension, if equity basket, how do we simulate uh, 500 uh, time series simultaneously? Very interesting. And uh, as I was mentioning to you, Pagos, uh, I think one of the goals of these series of uh, talks is to put together a white paper at the end of the summer school incorporating views from various practitioners, views from various academics, and putting together a paper which basically talks about like the challenges, the opportunities, uh, the state of the art without what we're saying, primarily coming from a practitioner's perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, I'd love to kind of, you know, continue the discussion uh, offline. And, uh, you know, all the, for the, all the listeners uh, for today's webinar, if you're interested in collaborating or contributing to this effort, please do contact us. We'll try to see how we can incorporate your views and your opinions as a part of this. I think we are gonna be running out of time. And I just wanted to acknowledge, I'm sorry, I could not get to all the questions. Uh, We will try and uh, summarize some of the questions and we will see if we can send it out um, as answers by email later. I'm gonna take a snapshot of the outstanding questions. Um, Mm -hmm. So August, I uh, really appreciate you taking uh, time of your busy day and uh, making time for us and sharing your amazing uh, research and views about model risk management and also best practices in general. And uh, you know, even though we're not able to meet, I really enjoyed our conversation when we met in San Francisco early in the yeah. year. Oh, and, uh, I wish I can you know, go back to, uh, to those days or you know, we'll look forward to you know, again meeting in person and have those uh, discussions around coffee tables, around yeah. uh, uh, dining tables to you know, uh, extend the thought. And that's, that's where we all get energized and you know, uh, we can share our thoughts and you know, see how we can make this practice much more accessible for the people who are coming in new in the field. And it's also for sharing the best practices across in the industry so that we can make this uh, a more formal and a well-established best practice. 
Uh, with that, thank you. I um, thank you again, Agus. Uh, do you have any uh, last words you'd like to say before we can adjourn for the session today? No, thank you for the uh, organizing this. It's uh, it's really fun. Three always uh, interacting with you. So looking forward to uh, to see you again very soon in the uh, post pandemic here. Otherwise, we'll uh, see you in in Zoom. So for the audience out there, if you have any question, let me know, and uh, you have my LinkedIn contact as well. So. We'll be happy and check uh, some of the paper that uh, my team produced that published in uh, archive if you're interested in. Uh, thank you so much, Agus. And uh, last uh, announcement, uh, the slides of today's presentation, I think there were a couple of requests and also the video of today's presentation will be made available. And uh, if you go to qusummerschool.splashthat.com, we are archiving all the links to all the summer school lectures. So you'll be able to access the lecture and also the slides there. Uh, with that, I would uh, thank you again for attending this session. And I'll see you again next week to hear from uh, Dr. Julia Fanti on synthetic data generation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Q Podcast. Subscribe to the Q Podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anchor.fm slash qpodcast. Till next week, goodbye.